Oh, you were talking about uh, the issue, uh, which is actually then a confusion between rebirth and reincarnation. Mm. Because the Buddhists claim to believe in rebirth, but when closely questioned, most of the people who hold those beliefs can't give a clear distinction between what is rebirth and what is reincarnation. Mm. And also, when hard-pressed, they cannot place uh, anywhere in the suttas or any in the early literature where the Buddha definitely says that there is reincarnation without uh, uh, rebirth, without explicitly saying that it's to be avoided, as if it were actually consciously capable of avoiding it, mm-hmm. which you, if you take it in the context of you're about to fall into that hell world right now, don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. As a, after you're dead, now somehow you magically wind up in some hell world. How did you get there, and how would the teacher, uh, the teaching of the Buddha, help you avoid that? Other than going back to the old law of karma, is you did some bad action, and so hell is the result of your bad action in the past. Mm. In fact, it may have been the action that you had a half second ago. Like he says, ah, and you says, ah, and you says, ah, 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 and now you've got, that's all it takes, and off they go. <laughs> and both of them are reborn in, into a hell world. Mm. Um, so um, the point then is that there is rebirth and reincarnation in the suttas, but that the Buddha knew about that stuff because he was trained that way as a prince. And he knew the Brahmin literature as good as any Brahmin could. And he used that to prove to them that he knew their position mm. so that he gained trust with them and then later began to teach them a deeper Dhamma. Mm. But we've got to get people oriented. We've got to get them to, to, to trust what we're saying. And I've recognized that that's a skill that I've had to develop. So he sort of... Dhamma on us. Using a prevalent metaphor, right? Like he, he uses the idea of of rebirth as a metaphor for how the self is continuously arising in relation to the thought, speech, and actions of the past and present. Right. But, but well, he yeah. It, but he doesn't explicitly say that. But this, this whole idea of the two-tiered approach has been the way that monks have taught all along. That, mm-hmm. in fact, I can give you many stories. And one of my favorites is David, a, a monk that, that was staying at Wat Suan Mok, went to um, Kuala Lumpur for his visa extension or to get a new visa. While he was there, he walked into the big Thai monastery that's in Kuala Lumpur. It, it, it surprised him in many ways, including the first one was that the abbot of the Wat was from Sri Lanka, not a Thai monk, mm. but he was in a Thai Wat. Second was that he spoke really good English. Mm. But when he first, uh, after he was shown who the monk was, David hold, held back because a Chinese woman 
had just lost her husband and the monk was talking to her in, in English because otherwise she's in Chinese and he's in Sri Lankan. So the communication is in English. David understands what is being said and he tells himself, I'm in the wrong place. Mm. This guy is magic oriented. Mm-hmm. But after the woman was finished and she left, then the monk turned to David, who was still in, I mean, he was newly in the robes. Uh, and and he, David told him that he was from Watsuan Mok. Immediately the monk knew. He knew exactly what was going on. Changed his whole approach and all of that kind of stuff. And that surprised David too. But this is how it is taught, is you take people where they are. Mm to build trust and then start to move them forward. And that uh, that's generally the way we got to get started a little bit and, and get them into a state of trust. If they don't trust you, then when we start talking about the Dhamma, they begin to take it personally, which would be would, would leave some of the statement. Why do you call me a loser? Well, wait a minute. I didn't call you a loser. I'm talking about how the mind works. Mm. But after they get all huffy up, there's no sign is gone now. <laughs> We've lost that quality of trust. Mm. So that's why the teachings are done in these in, in a two-step level. We don't just start telling the students who believe in magic to stop believing their magic and expect them to do so because they don't even know the extent of the magic. Mm. So instead, you it's, you show how that same metaphor which they are using magically can be applied to real life experience in a way that really reduces suffering, and then Precisely. kindly, subtly invite that wisdom to allow them to let go of the thinking which won't free them. All right. Well, now this happened at Watsuan Mok, and it became well known so that this became quite typical when people were, especially Westerners, because the Thais, they, they already got it. <laughs> but the Westerners who would come would ask this very question. And that uh, when that first started, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa gave the answer was is that, oh, well, I know plenty of places that you can go where you can ask those kind of questions. We're not interested in that here. We're interested in what we can do in this life to solve the problems of right now. Yeah, I, I did hear, I, uh, there's a, on SoundCloud, there's a lot of talks by Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa with that are kind of translated. There's like, anyway, I've listened to a few of them and you hear this, it's, yeah, the, the response is like very, it's kind of very diplomatic. It's like, we, we, we're not interested in that. If you, yeah, we're not, we don't really want to talk about it. We want to talk about this. It's not saying that's a load of rubbish. It's, it's um, not yet. <laughs> yeah, not, <in> trouble. <laughs> <laughs> not, not when the microphone was on. Um, yeah, it, it, I suppose, but so do, do you say that the majority of Thai people, the majority of Thai people have that understanding? that rebirth relates to this moment and this moment and this moment and this moment rather than where you know rather than it's okay don't worry that grandpa's died he'll be reborn in a you know deva realm and live a that would be that would be the lower class 
but that lower class would be like the villagers. But there is an upper class in Thailand that's broad, especially now that they have um, nationalized uh, university education to the point that anybody can get a university degree. Mm-hmm. But uh, Robert and I were just mu- musing recently about a book that he's uh, currently uh, beginning to work on that is a series of talks given by Bhikkhu Buddhadasa back as early as 1959 into the 60s. And he gave these in a huge auditorium to, um, and the auditorium was actually the auditorium of the Department of the Judiciary. Okay, it's almost like the Justice Department in the United States would have a uh, a, a massive uh, hall, and and they would invite a monk, <laughs> and that the entire judiciary of the country, perhaps the head of the equivalent of the FBI and army officers and all kinds of people are going to be part of this audience. Okay, we can couple that with the fact that the uh, the lawyers and the judiciary and all of that have uh, a few particular universities in Th- in Thailand that specialize in that. And one of them is uh, Thammasat University, which is actually a huge university, but it's right on the grounds of uh, this area around uh, Sanam Luang, a great park that that is on the the actual grounds of the royal palace. In other words, you can walk directly from Thammasat University to the royal palace without having to cross traffic. Mm -hmm. It's a big area, though. We've got universities. It's got Wat Mahatat, which is one of the major points. It also has um, uh, Wat Po, which has the largest reclining Buddha. They are also known for teaching massage. We also have the Royal Palace, the library, and um, these are the kinds of things that are in this neighborhood mm-hmm. of uh, Thammasat University. So Thammasat University now uh, and for, for many, many years has had a student body organization dedicated to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa mm-hmm. to the point that they've got their own bus system. Mm-hmm. And that they'll take a whole uh, fleet of buses, maybe 200, 300 students from Thammasat, uh, uh, drive all night on Friday. They're there all day Saturday and all day Sunday, and then uh, drive back on the bus at night and be ready for class on Monday morning. And they do that weekend after weekend after weekend. So in those days, Watson Mok was literally flooded with young uh, uh, Thai men in dressed in white but it's back to that connection with the judiciary so this whole point or the world is is that the elite or the educated class of thailand are the ones who mostly know about bhikkhu buddha dasa Mm. and we're talking about literally hundreds of thousands if not millions of people but it pales uh, to the population of the average low-class uh, folks who still believe in in uh, magic in Thailand. 
I, I'm the occasionally I get really disappointed by um, people who like monks uh, often um, who like seem to to know their stuff who seem to like have a you know who who have written things that I've read and gone yeah this really makes a lot of sense I like I like what this person's saying and then I'll I'll see something that they've said that makes it very clear that that they don't um that for them a conception of buddhism that doesn't see rebirth in that more literal sense to them doesn't make sense doesn't work or make sense and i i i'll read things like that and it will, it will surprise me because i'm like wait a minute you were speaking so sanely a moment ago and then now you've just switched into this into these assumptions and thoughts which strike me as so um i don't know now here's something that is uh, was one of the hard lessons for me to learn mm -hmm. because i would think that you either know your stuff or you don't know your stuff mm -hmm. but there are more options to it than that <laughs> you can know some of your stuff and not all your stuff yeah uh, well, yeah, there's a difference between you don't know nothing and you, you, you know way too much. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but the, the point is, is that we also have to consider that there's a time and a place for everything. Mm -hmm. That there is a very, very big issue within uh, Buddhism about uh, timing in the sense of how to teach the Dhamma. It's got to be done in a particular way, in a particular order, but that order is not well spelled out other than to kind of teach it in a third party. So where in psychotherapy, the distinction are there is that the psychotherapist and the client both know that everything that the psychotherapist says is talking about mm. and taking personally by the, the, the the client within mm -hmm. buddhism we we tend to and when we're teaching correctly <laughs> we do it non-personally or in general like the mind does this mm -hmm. rather than your stinking mind does this yeah but it's interesting that though that that further embeds a kind of like non a non it helps embed a non-self view because it's not all me my my mm -hmm. my my you know, unique, special, individual self. It's more like actually the mind. This is a property of the mind that I have and that you have and that he has and that she has. Yeah. Right. So it's not yeah. only good pedagogy, but it's also actually subtly challenging self-view, isn't it? Precisely. Hmm. Um, though in that regard, subtly. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, the distinction that I would make would be then that a meditation teacher, when confronted by one who believes in rebirth, especially if they're in a state of mourning or agitation or whatever like that, is to not try to change them out of that, but rather to have sympathy and put up with them at whatever level. But later then the idea is to help them to come to understand that 
if they're going to get anything out of Buddhism, they're going to have to do it now. Yeah. You can't, you can only postpone things so long and then it's too late. Yeah. And so this is an important point is, is that it's kind of a one, two punch. And this fits along with that old saying that I like so much from Jesus. Ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But first it's going to piss you off. (laughs) Okay. So if we're going to teach the truth, we want to do it in a way that supposedly doesn't piss people off. Especially when that's so much fun. (laughs) I don't like just to confuse Christians. I like to destroy them. (laughs) So I have to be careful because that'll lose a student in a hurry. So um, in this way, uh, there's that tiered method. And that that tiered method is actually shown, demonstrated, and taught in the sutta. And yet the one who relieves in rebirth, who already does that, he'll take that first part of that sutta and say, see, see, the Buddha teaches rebirth. No, the Buddha knows rebirth, but that's not his teaching. Mm-hmm. That uh, one of the favorite ones that they will bring up, but that the Buddha teaches rebirth, actually at the end of it, is the flat-out statement, therefore, don't be reborn. Isn't that interesting? How mm-hmm. can someone who says that the when the Buddha is teaching uh, rebirth, at the end of the sutta that they're using an example of him teaching rebirth, is the line, don't be reborn? <laughs> Well, for people who believe in rebirth within a kind of Buddhist system, it's like rebirth is what happens until you attain enlightenment, right? Until you are become fully awake. Right. And when you become fully awake, you'll stop believing in magic immediately. (laughs) You don't have to wait until you finally become enlightened. Do it right now. Say, what a bunch of junk that is. Enlightened right now already. (laughs) Wake up, wakey. That's a way of escaping rebirth is by seeing the delusion of it. Mm. The way of escaping death where death has no sting. Why? It's because I'm willing to die now. I finally had enough of this old world. Mm. Let go of the idea that there is a self that can die. That suffers because of death. Because basically what what death is, is that it's the final extinguishment of the self-preservation instinct. And as long as that self-preservation instinct is still active, there's going to be a great deal of fear around uh, and before death itself comes. Hmm. But... If you've thought about it, contemplated it, you've been to 200 funerals, you've seen um, uh, um, autopsy tapes, Mm. um, uh, and you've contemplated that the body gets old. It gets old and decrepit, and it's going to get worse and worse. It's not going to get any better than this. All downhill from here. (laughs) <laughs> and then you start putting two and two together and you recognize that, hey, it's going to happen. 
Am I going to resist it when it does? Because if I can be free from death now, I can be free from, I mean, if I can be free from death when it actually happens and know that I can, Mm. it in fact, that goes back to that first knowledge. And Mm. that first knowledge is it doesn't matter how obstructed the mind gets. I can, in fact, come back to this present moment and see the truth of what's happening right now. Even if that obstruction is so heavy that it's my last breath. That this is the time. Am I going to finally, after having so many years of feeling good, going to finally freak out when I'm dying? (laughs) No. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's, and is that, I suppose it's that like, uh, that bravery to not only not freak out at that moment, but to have that not freaking out based on a real view of life and death. Mm -hmm. Because you have people not freaking out on their on their deathbed because they know they're going to heaven now or they know they're going to be reborn and they've been really good so they're probably going to be reborn in one of the really great realms always <laughs> doubt there's always yeah. doubt was yeah. I good enough yeah very very few and not only that but at the basis of any magical belief is the basis of doubt Mm. Even in the sleight of hand trick, everybody wants to know, how did he do that? A really clear example of that was is they, they did a long expose. I saw it, uh, the article in a newspaper long after you, the newspaper was published because this lady that I had met on the train in Bangalore showed me this. She pulled this out because she knew I'd talking to her that I was going to see Satya Sai Baba. And Mm -hmm. she says, come home with me. I want to feed you supper. She drags out this newspaper, which is an expose of people holding old-timey cameras at waist level Mm -hmm. so that they can watch what his hands are doing. (coughs) Because he was a sleight-of-hand magician, Mm -hmm. and he would uh, magically appear uh, uh, holy ash, a Rolex, diamonds, Mm. All kinds of stuff he was capable of, but he was also in cahoots with the guy who actually wrote, owned the watch, the Rolex. Mm. And so <laughs> it was all a big sham. But, and when any one of us in the West come to that kind of thing, the first real question we ask will be, how did he do that? Which means we intrinsically doubt mm. that he actually did produce that stuff magically. Mm. So this leads to that statement that I think is so cute. There are no Christians at a Christian funeral. Mm. Have I told you about that one? Yeah, yeah. And what yeah. the other one is? Yeah, yeah. And they say, first off, there are no atheists in foxholes, which means everybody in the foxhole is scared yeah. to death and they're praying to God. No, it didn't mean that at all. It means that the atheists were smart enough <laughs> not to volunteer at the wrong time. Yeah. Uh, they're not in the foxhole. Only yeah. the stupid Christians are in the foxhole. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're, point, you're pointing to the 
to the tendency of the mind to know to see through the bullshit <laughs> but there is also i'd say that there is an equal and opposite pull within the mind to grab at the bullshit desperately because without that there's the sense that there's nothing <laughs> exactly okay so what it so is, that... buddhism's almost like a training in the understanding the depth and richness and potential for joy in that nothing <laughs> Or, um, actually, the emptiness is rich. Yeah. But that it's empty of the results of magic. Yes. That there's nothing magical within that. And that that's disappointing because people put a lot of um, faith in magic. In fact, faith is the belief in magic. Mm hmm. Because if, if it's evidence, then it's evidence and it's knowledge. If there is no evidence, then, that, then that's belief in magic. That's the big difference is, is that in the actual teachings of the Buddha, we've got good, hard, solid evidence that this works. Mm -hmm. And that, in fact, you have good, solid evidence that it works by just looking at my face. Yeah. And so that gets you started, and then you begin to get it for yourself. And now you've got good, solid evidence based on your own experience. But another quality is, is that we also have an underlying foundation of ordinary reality, that nothing that we teach in the, te in the teachings of the Dhamma go against basic natural reality. And we mm. can kind of get that. There's no magic built into it. You don't have to believe in unicorns or uh, rodents or, wait a minute, <laughs> um, uh, um, uh, you, um, leprechauns, nothing. Mm -hmm. Okay, you don't have to believe that uh, Buddha came out of the side of his mom, even if it was the front side. You know that old magical story that the Buddha yeah. was on, on, his, on his mother's side? Well, of course. And then of course he came out of her side. Where do you think? Out of her talk? No, she's going to come right out of the side here, right where? Right in front, the front side of it. Here it comes, popping out a baby. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't make any sense that all of this magic comes into it. But it, well, on a historical basis, that's the um, a lot of that I've heard you talk about how that at the time of Ashok, perhaps that was the time when a lot of those mythologizing uh stories that you associate in indian spirituality with the stories about the avatars and gods start to be used around precisely the so uh, one of the analogies i use is imagine that the actual teachings of the buddha is like a little shrine a little building that uh is quite small Mm -hmm. uh, out in the woods or the wilderness someplace. And when you run across this place to get into it, you have to climb over huge amounts of baggage and junk that mm -hmm. has been left there over the years and the centuries. Mm -hmm. But there's so much of it that people begin to think that all that baggage has been left at the front entrance because you can't take all of that baggage in. When you go into that room, you've got to be pure. So you've got to jump, jump all the baggage. So the beginner, when he gets there, he thinks that all of this baggage is Buddhism. 
He doesn't mm -hmm. even know that you've got to drop your baggage right here and right in front. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to climb over all of this old baggage to get to the real truth. Mm -hmm. that's, an, that's an interesting way of looking at it, that mm -hmm. we've got to climb over all of the old baggage that was left by all of the students of the Buddha when they joined. And so all of that still left in there is the rubbish, which is exactly mm -hmm. how that sutta that I was telling you works. Mm. is that the Buddha is actually talking about all of this uh, Hindu or uh, Brahmin stuff. Mm. But after, after they know that he knows it well, and they're willing to accept him as a teacher, only then will he then start to point out that this is, an, in fact, baggage. Mm. But in the beginning, he's got to point out that he knows all about that. So mm. this is the way that the Buddha taught, and that's the way that uh, basically any young man who enters the temple, over time, he's going to have to come out of the magical beliefs that he was in and accept the reality. One of the examples of the magical belief is, is that the mothers in Thailand are taught that they can get to heaven by riding on the coattails of their sons, mm. who, are, who is a monk. monk. Yeah. Well, guess what? The coattails don't reach the ground. Mom can't ride on that robe. <laughs> Magic poof, gone right then and there. But later, this, uh, uh, the young man learns that what that means is, is that his mother actually did go to heaven while he became a monk. His ordination ceremony was heaven for his mom. And now we say, mm, wait a minute, that means that now this young monk has an obligation to help keep his mom in heaven by his own correct behavior. And so now the magic begins to work when mm -hmm. people understand it correctly. When people apply it to lived experience in, in the moment. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, it just sounds like more magic. Oh, no, this is actually the way that Thai Buddhism works, is that mom does ride the coattails of her son into heaven. Mm. But it's said in a metaphorically way, and if you take it literally, it's a bunch of magic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's interesting how... Buddhism develops in the West. See, I I would have thought. I know you you that inherently the Western mind, you know, post Enlightenment, scientific materialism being the kind of like dominant worldview, etc. In the West, I would have thought that. And I, well, I suppose maybe this is just my experience that. That's the most obvious. Thing. Like, as I was describing to you before, my uh, coming to know Buddhism, coming to like read and, and understand a little bit more about the teachings of the Buddha and my kind of first steps in meditation and, and all the things that uh, kind of brought me to Skype you nine months ago or so. Um, reincarnation was always the thing rebirth call it what you will was always the thing that didn't make sense 
And I think that that is quite, it will be quite a common experience with the Western mind, which is why the Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and that specific lineage, which wasn't very shy about actually making that point kind of loudly, <laughs> is such a appealing lineage for the West. It's, I think it's part of the reason why Titnat Han because he he similarly is quite outspoken about that about that understanding you know he says he's well, he, you know says it in similar ways to the way we've been discussing it that it is a a metaphor for mm -hmm. um how reality or how we can choose to suffer or not in this moment um okay. and that the deep and, and he also has that similar approach that you described where you go like right what what are the deepest teachings of of Buddhism? You know, non-self, emptiness, um, suffering, and freedom from suffering. If if you stumble across a commentary or a monk or a teacher or something that that fundamentally opposes one of those concepts, you can say you can let go of it, and you can say this isn't. You, you know, so for example. If you if there is a sutta which seems to kind of be arguing for a more literal understanding of reincarnation, to kind of have the confidence in one's understanding of the the heart of the Buddha's teachings enough to go to to let go of that because it doesn't agree with this. Mm -hmm. um, and he yes, that's what we can say about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. In fact, that he did take a risk. Yeah. It may have, in fact, been even a bigger risk than he understood. But as he matured himself in the Dhamma, and I've got several examples of that. The last one, we were Robert and I were talking about how we can see that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, over time, changed his attitude mm -hmm. about the Vasudhimaga from, oh, well, there's a few things wrong with it. Down to, oh, well, I agree with most of what's in there. Down to, um, this book is ready for the trash heap. Mm. And that was about the time that I came along, was is that the monks had already, with the Buddha Dasa, evolved to that. But when we go back to the literature of the, um, the 50s and the 60s, you can still see him um, praising various mm. aspects of the Basudimaga while trashing other parts of it. Mm. But the further he came, the older he got, the more he understood and did the translations, the, the more he wanted to throw the whole show out and came back mostly to just the suttas. Now, now that we have that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is in fact dedicated to the super mundane or mm. to the noble path, or the one that is actually liberating. Mm -hmm. Because here's the key ingredient. And that is the key ingredient is the first fetter. The very first fetter mm -hmm. is personality view. Mm -hmm. If you understand the personality to be fixed as if it were going to be reincarnated in another lifestyle, lifetime, then that prevents you from going in the Dhamma any deeper than that. Mm -hmm that in fact, that's the main reason why most of the Thai people don't practice meditation. It's because they're stuck in this life anyway. 
at least according to that traditional belief that there's no way out. And that's exactly the way that the Basuti Maga teaches. If it takes three lifetimes to go from ignorance all the way into suffering, then where is it that we can do something now to get results now? It's always either way deeply in the past that's affecting us now, or things we do now will affect us way off into the future. Mm -hmm. That means that there's no path for finishing the job right here and now. Mm -hmm. And so this is the place where Bhikkhu Buddhadasa became especially um, uh, ferocious mm -hmm. about the Pasuti Maga, but eventually went to the point of just saying the whole thing is out. There's, there's problems on, on every page. Mm -hmm. um. Zen, Zen doesn't emphasize re. I've or correct. What what is the kind of traditional Zen attitudes towards the idea of rebirth? Just out of curiosity, because I I don't. Do you know how 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 deep and raw do you want to go? Down deep. to the point, the Zen one of the deepest Zen statement is is that life and death are the same thing. Hmm. But that's the, that would be the thought of the samurai as he goes into his last battle. Hmm. Life and death are the same thing. Okay, from that position, you can see that there is actually a great deal of very deep wisdom in Zen and not so much belief system that in fact the old belief system is more like the Shinto Yes, yeah. The original religion of Zen, but Zen and Shintoism have gone together like this, the same way that happened in Thailand. Mm. That Thailand has its own traditional religion of its own that we would classify as animism. It's something like um, Hinduism, mm. uh, where everything is a god on its own, but two remarkable things about Thai Buddhism is the tallest tree or the big on of the tallest tree on the hill or the biggest around tree is mm -hmm. sacred. We've got one mm -hmm. here on the island. There's a tree here uh, less than 200 yards from us that um, it is the largest tree of its species mm -hmm. uh, in Thailand. Mm -hmm. And it is the largest tree on the island. Mm -hmm. That makes it especially sacred and is right at the front door of a Wat. You would expect that. They're going to put a Wat right there. It's I mean, you get the same churchyards in England. Um, traditionally, or a lot of them have very ancient yew trees. So the oldest living organisms in Britain are yew trees, which people think are three to 4,000 years old, the oldest specimens. Okay. And so you get so these sites of the worship that were built on pagan sites of worship. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. All right. So there. I think it, that's an interesting impulse. That thing, like the biggest, the oldest tree, is somehow this like special thing. But go on, continue with that point. Oh, well, just one more thing about that, and that is, is in the 1970s, Thailand was going through uh, a temper revolution. But chainsaws were, uh, were proliferating everywhere. Uh, they put uh, the elephant tribes into use uh, to pull logs off of hills that trucks couldn't go to. 
-hmm. and all kinds of things, and they were just decimating the forest in northwest Thailand. (sighs) But the monks, what did they do? They grabbed every old robe and every scrap of orange cloth they could and put it around all the bigger trees, Mm -hmm. blessed them, made them sacred to keep the farmers from taking a chainsaw to it. And so they were able to keep the old growth forest. But then uh, very quickly after that, uh, government um, actually banned chainsaws, confiscated them, Mm. and then took a bulldozer, put them on an airstrip, and bulldozed an entire nation of uh, chainsaws. That's very enlightened governance. To save the forest. But Mm. the original part of the saving of the forest was done by the monks using magic from the old stuff. This was not uh, uh, Buddhism in any way, shape, or form. Mm. This was the old animism of the country. Mm. So another aspect of the old animism of the country uh, manifests itself here in Thailand is what we call spirit houses. Mm. And the spirit house means that if, if the humans are going to take this land away from the spirits who originally owned it, we've got to give them some accommodations. And that accommodation then uh, uh, traditionally was a little birdhouse kind of structure way up on a stick, Mm. high in the air above the house, or uh, more ornate. But they are also found inside the house. We've got one of them in here. This one is dedicated to the Buddha, except that you have all of the uh, animistic kinds of associations with it, Mm. including statues of a Rishi, um, uh, 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 in Thai, they're called Rusi, but this is Rishi, like Rishikesh or Mahashi. Uh, yeah, Rishi, uh, right? Yeah. Like the ancient right, that, peers, the Vedas. The the exactly, right. Yeah. Not Buddhist. Yeah. These are the old Rishis of, uh, in, of uh, India and, and Thailand as part of that culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll also have a tiger, they'll have other animals there but it's associated with the nature religion that Thailand and, and uh, uh, the sacredness of mm. that is still evident in See, Thailand. I, I find those, um, I find that, I find that sort of magic very appealing because it works on the level of like poetry or metaphor and it kind of in it it can bring a sense of like a rich sacredness to your relationship with nature i'm i'm very interested in trees yew trees especially it's this species of tree um that can live to three five thousand years old and actually they can live for longer and they they let themselves die so that they can continue to live. They hollow out. It's why I love that metaphor of um, the heartwood of the Bodhi tree. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that the deepest wisdom of this tree is its ho- is its emptiness. Is that, do I understand mm-hmm. that metaphor correctly? Is that you what it is? You can do that, yeah, that, that works. Uh-huh. Because it, it's about the ficus religiosa, which hollows out, right? So the heartwood of the Bodhi tree is actually uh, an, 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 vac- an emptiness. It is when it's a yew tree. So yew trees hollow out and then we, and they do that because if, they're, if they don't hollow out, they get too big. Because some of them have circumferences of like 30, 40, even 50 feet, the biggest ones. But they hollow out and they turn, they become a shell 
they 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 reduce in size they have a smaller canopy and then they start to like lay down internal roots and can then re kind of grow back into a, a, a younger bigger tree from those roots but it's still the same organism so Precisely. about uh -huh. seven about five years ago i sat like before i came to to have an interest in the buddha's teachings before meditation i became like so fascinated by these trees because they were like letting go to live they were like letting go of the past so that they could like live so that they could live it, it was something about like the metaphor of it and mm -hmm. i would go and i'd find these ancient trees in woodlands like and i'd sleep in them and i'd kind of approach it like quite a I'd sling up a hammock between low branches, spend, some of them you can spend like, there's one tree in particular that I go to every year and I sleep in, in this thing. You can climb it for like three hours because it's like a forest because you climb up one trunk and then you swap to another trunk, swap to another trunk, go right to the top, go right into its hollow, go out on the limb over here, a limb over here. They're astonishing things. But yeah, that, that, that type of magical thinking where it imbues reality with a, a kind of richness and when you take it kind of metaphorically and you understand that it's essentially an idea that you are using to to enter into a kind of richer relationship precisely so the child's question would be does the tree know you're in the tree when you're climbing around the tree yeah now, the answer that. is of course the tree knows yeah. you there how could it not but yeah. it may not know it the way that you would know an ant on your skin. Yeah. But it does know it. That tree I, is alive and um, awake in its I've own thought, way. I thought that very thing and thought, like, you know, what what is tree consciousness like with all its, like, you know, millions of leaves and 60 foot and roots going into the ground and the connecting with the fungi under the ground and the other old ewes in the forest? Like, what is... And, it's, and also the organism that lives for that long and over that period of time, what is life like for that? <laughs> yes, especially since there's no place to go. <laughs> yeah. I've already told my children that when I die, they need to climb to the very top of the tree and disperse me. <laughs> oh, I want them to chop you up in little pieces and feed you to the birds. <laughs> <laughs> I'd prefer, I'd prefer to be buried under the tree, but then I'd be asking them to do a very illegal thing. Uh, <laughs> you can't just bury people in the woods <laughs> in England, even if they want to oh, be. Oh, really? England's been doing that for centuries and centuries, millennia even, and now you can't do it. They made it long. I got that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, Let's finish this off with the whole idea about the, the situation that there is a use and value for magic, mm. especially within metaphor. But mm. that, too, can be taken too far. Mm. And that the too far means is that when we're not getting value out of these metaphors, so that if we think that there is, in fact, a permanent self, then that prevents us from being able to change it. Mm. So we have to begin to understand that, oh, no, I'm not permanent at all. I'm all over the place. In fact, I'm a crowd. Only can I get unification of mind is by understanding that the mind is all over the place mm. so that we can bring it 
to a unity. But that still uh, is not, uh, in a way, that's kind of a rebirth on its own. That would be the kind of rebirth that Jesus would talk about in the sense that you must be born again of the spirit because he was asked directly, you mean I've got to enter my mother's womb again? And Jesus says, no, that's kind of dumb. But we're talking about in, in Buddhism, we would then call that the change of lineage from being an ordinary person into a noble. And this, I think, is what Jesus is talking about. That's a different kind of rebirth, which mm -hmm. is a rebirth in our entire attitude. An, an example of that is from the attitude of a loser to the attitude of a winner. How big a difference can a human being make in their life than doing that? Mm. That's a major change in, in one's personality. Is that confidence that it takes to uh, know that I can handle any situation? Mm. Because very few have that kind of uh, position. We say, I don't know what it is, but something's going to get me. Mm. And so we, we are, we're on guard, we're unsafe, we're trying to do things to patch things up, but we're never quite satisfied. And so that's the whole point then, that we can be satisfied, but we have to change our personality to do that. Mm. We cannot remain the same. Mm. And when we understand that part, that's when there is then power over death or power over uh, this life and death or rebirth that we take power over. It, and that power, in fact, is the confidence and uh, the knowledge that we can do this. That, in fact, you can think about it like this. The loser wants rebirth because he wants a do-over, because this time wasn't good enough. Mm. Ta-da! If this time is good enough, we don't need another chance. This one was it. Ta-da! And this is it. <laughs> and so that's a, 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 the basic attitude right there, which means that if we're a loser and um, we don't think that we can do it ourselves, that we're not winners, that means that we want help. We want to get someone else to do it for us. Mm. We want a savior. We want mm. a mommy. We want a therapist mm. or something because I can't do it myself. And so that whole change of attitude to yes, you can do it yourself is now meaning we do not need all of the things that everyone does need when they are in fact losers. An example would be a magical Jesus to save us. Mm -hmm. To where reality would be, Jesus was a really, really smart teacher who had a very good things to say. I wish people would have listened to him instead of doing with Christianity what they did do to it. That's mm -hmm. the right way to look at Jesus. Whether he existed or not, we're not sure, but we do know that whatever it is that he had to say was really spot on and in mm -hmm. line with the Buddha. Mm -hmm. But we do not need Jesus any more than we need a dead Buddha. What we need is the Buddha's teachings. Mm -hmm. In the time of the Buddha, taking refuge in the Buddha himself was quite important because he was the example. But now that lineage has come down through him 
to modern times is that that refuge you're going to the teacher because the teacher is showing you this is what there is that is the result of the teachings of the Buddha. And so we take then that kind of refuge, which is also a way of talking about the refuge in the Sangha. But a bigger refuge in the Sangha is the friendship and the camaraderie and the mutual support of the Sangha. And that we need to take refuge into that. And right now in the West, we don't have a Western Sangha yet. Mm. It's uh, kind of like every man for himself. And uh, if you need a life raft, we'll throw you a book. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. If you can pay for it. Need- mm-hmm. And so... We need an organization of friends. We need a real sangha. We need um, cooperation. We need to bring the group together uh, and, and, and let it build and grow because the bigger this organization is, the more students we can actually give good value to rather than having them go and pay for things. So it's kind you know, a lot of people are going to be very reluctant to hear about rebirth in one way or the other, but most of them are, are kind of like you. You you were unsure, but you wanted to find out for sure what really was the the deep sticky of reincarnation and rebirth. And now you know. And in a way, you were kind of disappointed because you wanted to prove to yourself that you would get reborn. Instead of now, you've kind of proven to yourself, ah, <laughs> not that. That's it. Yeah, there's the twin impulses. Part of you, the part, the real part, wants to to find a way of coming to terms with the, what you know to be the truth. Mm-hmm. And another part of you is excited by these ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's like magical, what we, proper, magical we ignored that the other day when we were talking about sort of certain types of awareness that arise in meditation and how certain traditions will say, you know, that is what you are. And it's almost like, oh, so when I die, I just get to be this blissful awareness. Is that right? And I suppose it's like that magical thinking coming back in at a kind of mm-hmm. subtle or, or the temptation or the towards it at any rate well that's actually part of the problem then is the question of what's it like after you die what's Mm. it like being dead the problem is nobody knows the best (laughs) we can come up with is what's it like to die uh, to be in the process of dying Mm. what's it like to actually be in the process of dying uh that actually uh was what Socrates was interested in right in the last few moments he began to do Vipassana vocally mm-hmm. he would talk about what was happening to his legs and how the poison was crawling up through his mm-hmm. body and that kind of stuff so that was how he went out he was watching he mm-hmm. was noting what was going on mm-hmm. uh, and so well, this- there's that thing of what's it like to die though it presupposes an, an existence and a non-existence and mm-hmm. so it's, it's saying what's 
Well, Kit Nut Hahn has quite a, a nice thing about that. He says it's it's like asking the cloud what it's like to rain, because <laughs> it's 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 something transforming and turning from one state into another state. Is it less happy when it's the rain than when it was the cloud? It's like a process, <laughs> a change. Precisely so, exactly. And so we don't know what it's like to be dead. Nobody's ever told us that we would believe. Mm. And so that, that has to be left as one of the unknowns, un, uh, imponderables. Mm. So but we, we don't can know train what it... for that process by acclimatizing ourselves to the notion or to the experience of impermanence and the experience of non-self and the, the living life with those understandings prepares us to face that transition right. with the, exactly. with the... Okay. So that is in fact why I was mentioning that the uh, that first uh, fetter of personality we have to get over that mm. that we in fact are not that permanent entity that we magically thought that we were we're not permanent we are going to die mm. and we do not know what's after that but we do know this that when worms eat human DNA, it does not stay human DNA, it becomes worm DNA. But like so you it, said, like you said, we said this in our discussion the other day, that's happening all the time. I'm, I'm shedding DNA, you know, right, right now. Right, exactly. Constantly falling apart. Precisely, precisely. And it's all process of just Riding away and letting go. Mm. And so uh, that's hard to do when the belief system is, is that I'm permanent and I'm everlasting. But when we let go of those delusions and see everything just temporary, everything is just temporary, then we're quite willing eventually to actually let go because we don't have a choice. And now we recognize we don't have a choice in that one. Mm. We have a choice about how we're going to go out, but going out is no choice. It's going to happen. Mm. Every one of our conversations in the last few months comes back to dying. <laughs> I feel it's a very uh, positive uh, way of like focusing these teachings. Do you know what I mean? It's like... It's... That's the big one. Yeah. That's the big one. We, if we keep hammering on that big one and getting over fear of death, then what is there to fear? What's left? Yeah. If I'm not afraid to die, then how can I be afraid of that three-year-old who's having a tantrum? <laughs> Don't they just kill you? <laughs> yeah well matt thanks for this i've really enjoyed this but um uh it's gotten late and uh i hope that you've gotten something of value out of it thank you very much i've gotten 
something priceless out of it. Um, I'm going to email you. Uh, Good. Thank you. About that thing. Cool. Excellent. Okay. All, All right. right. See you. Bye-bye. Thank you.